Well, let's turn together to Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. I said the sermon is from Acts 1, 8. I'm going to read uh, verses 6 through 8 to give us just a little bit of context in that. We're continuing this series on the Holy Spirit. Most of you know that because you've been here. If you're just joining us today for the first time, we're going through this uh, series on the Holy Spirit as a little bit of a, uh, an aside as we study through the Gospel of John and wanting to get somewhat of a, a broad and comprehensive view of who Jesus is and what He does and just have our perspective shaped by the breadth of the Scriptures in that regard. And so we turn today to Acts chapter 1 to consider what we would learn about the Holy Spirit and the Great Commission. And so if you'll open your Bible there, uh, or if you don't have a Bible, you can look on the screen, but I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word and just attentiveness to His voice. Listen to the Word of the Lord. So when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we open your word now with the firm belief that it is the word that you have spoken and that every time we open it, you have something to say to us in it. You know every heart here, every life. You know, God, uh, better than we do, again, all the burdens that we carry and the things that we need to hear, the ways we need to be encouraged, the way we need to be challenged, the way we need to be convicted. We open our hearts and our ears to receive from you and ask that you would speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory and our good. God, would you move me out of the way and use my voice as your instrument? Lord, by your grace and providence, cause people to hear and retain the things that are of you and to discard the things that are not, are not. In Christ's name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, as I said, we're, we're kind of aiming for this comprehensive, even though not exhaustive, study of the Holy Spirit. And one of the guiding questions we could say uh, behind this series is, what should we expect? from the Holy Spirit? I think that's actually a good question because it's easy enough actually to talk about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Who is he and what does he do? And it's easy enough for all of that to remain at sort of an abstract level. But if we frame the question uh, a little differently, that in light of those things that are true about him and what he does, what should we expect of him? Well, anyone seeking to answer that question 
has to visit the book of Acts. If they want a biblical answer to that question, right? You, you have to pass through the book of Acts because the work of the Holy Spirit is so prominent there. In fact, I did a, uh, just a quick word search. And the words Holy Spirit, if you search just those words, Holy Spirit, you'll find 42 occurrences in the book of Acts, 24 in all the books after Acts. So from Romans through Revelation, the words Holy Spirit are used 24 times in the book of Acts, 42 times. And that's probably not necessarily surprising to you. For those who have been students of the Bible, you just know how prominent is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. So anybody seeking to answer the question, what should we expect from the Holy Spirit, has to pass through the book of Acts. And so we might then ask, should we expect the Holy Spirit to work in the same ways today that he did in the book of Acts? Well, some say no to the, as an answer to that question. Should, the Holy, should we expect the Holy Spirit to work in all the same ways? Some people say no, that we, we ought not to expect him to do anything like he did in Acts because it, the book of Acts is mostly about the apostles and the miracles they performed, these, these folks would say, were intended to confirm the authority of the apostles to speak the words of Jesus, essentially, to speak prophetically. And that once the apostles wrote the books and letters that became the New Testament, the signs and wonders that occurred in Acts were no longer necessary because now the church had the scriptures. And so uh, those signs and wonders and extraordinary gifts and that kind of thing sort of fizzled out by the end of the first century and ceased to be. That uh, position is called cessationism, meaning that the gifts, those uh, sign gifts as they would call them, those more miraculous supernatural gifts ceased. So some would answer no to that question. I, I take the time even to uh, speak to that just so everybody has some perspective. We probably have some people sitting here who are uh, more inclined uh, toward that position, but many of you are at least familiar with that. So some would say no. Some would say an emphatic absolutely yes. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, it's the, the word of the gospel that was to be confirmed by the signs, the word, not the apostles themselves. And so, in fact, healing and deliverance are part of the good news of the kingdom of God. And there's no reason to expect that the Holy Spirit would cease to demonstrate the power of God in the world and in the church today uh, any less than he did in the first century church. Some say no, some say yes. I would suggest to you the answer is Yes, but. Uh, or we might even say yes and no. Because first of all, I would say I, there is no compelling reason from the scriptures to believe that miracles or certain uh, uh, spiritual gifts would cease. I, I, um, I, there are people that I know and love and consider brothers and sisters in the Lord who believe that those Miraculous gifts have ceased. Love Jesus, love the Word of God, 
and I love them as brothers, but I, I don't find that compelling at all. The view that those things would have ceased. So yes, we should expect the Holy Spirit remains the same and that he can continue to do uh, mighty works when, where, and how he wills. But no, we should not expect the Holy Spirit to work just the same in a church that does not work just the same. We ought not to expect the Holy Spirit to work in the way he did in the first century when the church does not work the way the church did in the first century. If we want to get our theology of the Holy Spirit from the book of Acts, we, we need to get our theology of the church, of mission, of evangelism, and so forth from the book of Acts as well. So hopefully, I have your attention. Are you interested in hearing more? Here, let, let, me, let me sort of, again, say this uh, forthrightly in case I muddle it up from here. This is... I like this is the sermon in a nutshell. Here's what I'm trying to communicate uh, today. Actually, I'm not even sure if this says what I'm trying to say. I, uh, I hacked at this so many times, so many edits. This just a couple of bullet points. But here's how I would lay it down. That the fullness of the Holy Spirit's work, the fullness of the Holy Spirit's work, cannot be separated from Great Commission work. Okay? The fullness of the Holy Spirit's work cannot be separated from Great Commission work. And so I just elaborate that or expound upon that by saying, when the gospel is penetrating darkness, when the gospel is going forth and it is penetrating darkness, we can expect the Holy Spirit to work in powerful ways. And we see that uh, right on down to our day. However, we should not expect the Holy Spirit to show great commission power where there is not great commission proclamation. I hope this makes sense so far how I framed that, but just to say, when we read the New Testament, if we want, if we want to um, see and understand the, what the fullness of the Holy Spirit's power and work is, there is a, there is a substantial amount of that work that is connected to the Great Commission and can't be separated from that. Let me see if I can make sense of that before we're finished. Uh, some of you have heard it said that Acts 1.8 is the outline of the whole book of Acts. The reason I know some of you have heard that said is because I said it. When we, we went through that doesn't mean you remember it, but uh, when we went through the book of Acts as a sermon series a few years back, I made that point. Acts 1.8 is really the outline of the whole book, because it says there, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That is exactly the way the book of Acts unfolds. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit's poured out 
um, the witnessing begins and they continue going and witnessing first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth to the end of the earth as it says in the ESV. That is, in other words, what the book of Acts is about. It is a, it is a story of the spread of the gospel. It's sort of a transitional book um, that, that builds a bridge between the gospels and the epistles, we might say. And so um, it's book two of Luke's gospel that he's writing to Theophilus to explain how Christianity came to be and how it came to be all over the world. He, he's, he says here in the opening, if you, were, if you look back in the first verse, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. If you read Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, you see that his gospel, the, the first book, was addressed to Theophilus. It was written for a particular audience. And he says right here, in the first book, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is, now I'm going to write about all the things he continued to do and teach by the Holy Spirit through the hands and mouths of the apostles. But you can, you can maybe imagine a guy named Theophilus who's introduced to the Christian faith, who wonders and maybe commissions and you know, pays for the writing of this book, but wonders, how is it that the son of a carpenter from a nowhere town called Nazareth ends up with a following of passionate people willing to give their life for him? And they're all over the Greco-Roman world. How did that come to be? Acts is written to explain that. How do we get from a Jewish carpenter in Nazareth to a faith that's turning the world upside down? It's transitional in that sense. It's a story of the first generation of Christian converts. Part of the significance of that is we need to, we need to understand how to read or not read the book of Acts to a certain extent because it is only first-generation Christians. You don't have anybody in the book of Acts, for example, who grew up in church. Right? No, no, nobody in Acts would give the testimony, oh, yeah, I was raised in a Christian home. My mom and daddy took me to church all the time. That, that didn't happen to anybody because nobody there had that experience. It's the first generation of Christians. It's transitional in a certain respect. But it is a story of how the gospel spread. It's also a story, because of that, of the gospel breaking into new territory. And I think these are, uh, this, either these are lenses we ought to put on as we look at the book of Acts, or maybe it's another one of the lenses in the bifocals. I'm not sure exactly what, how the metaphor would work out. But it's a story of the gospel breaking into new territory. Because what you have is, first the gospel is preached in Jerusalem, right? Then it goes to Judea, 
then it goes to Samaria, then the ends of the earth to uh, Galatia and Phrygia to um, Thessalonica and Philippi over to Corinth and Athens and Ephesus and all over the place, right? It, go, it keeps going into new territory. And here's what you read in the, in the book of Acts. That when the gospel penetrates, breaks into new territory, that it's punctuated with great demonstrations of power, right? When the gospel, when the gospel goes forth, it is met with great power. It's also met with intense opposition that is fundamentally spiritual, but it manifests as opposition politically, uh, socially, religiously. Do you remember this about the book of Acts? I mean, you know, Paul could start a riot better than anybody we've seen in our life. There's been, a, there's been some riots in the last couple of years. I mean, Paul could start one unlike anybody we've seen. You just go into the synagogue, shake things up, and they go looking for a pile of rocks to throw at him, you know. And that's, that's part of the story. Uh, the, the book of Acts is a story of the proclamation of the gospel. It's spread into new territory that when it goes into new ter- territory, it, is, uh, it, it penetrates darkness and so is met with great opposition from the enemy and met with great demonstrations of power from the Holy Spirit. If you're tracking with me, say amen. Okay, good. Thank you. So that is, I think, number one, really helpful lenses for us to look through when we even understand what is the book of Acts about. So you can, you can turn to just about every chapter and find the Holy Spirit working in power, right? I mean, it's the, the very outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, and um, the, they all speak in tongues and people hear them in their own languages. You get that in, in Acts 2 and the proclamation that comes from that. Then in Acts chapter 3, they're going up to the temple to pray. They see the lame beggar, tell him to rise and walk, and he does. Then what happens? They meet Intense opposition from the Jewish leaders. They're threatened. Don't speak in that name anymore. Well, they do speak in that name. And then they continue to do mighty works. People, people are bringing the sick out into the streets so that even Peter's shadow might fall on them. And they would be healed. You have even Stephen and Philip, who aren't apostles, but some of the first deacons doing great signs and wonders, or great signs and wonders are done through them in uh, Acts 6, 7, and 8. And I could go right down. It's not every single chapter that you see something miraculous, but if you're not reading about something miraculous, you're probably reading about the opposition to their proclamation um, on trial, in prison, or one thing or another. That's the story of the book of Acts the spread of the gospel, the power that spread meets with, and the opposition to it as well. And so, uh, in fact, I, I should mention this. I, um, 
the opposition really is, is about as prevalent as the power in the book of Acts. I mean, we think, I'm, I, the reason I'm framing this message the way that I am is because many of us in the modern day like to go to the book of Acts to get um, some teaching about the Holy Spirit. We don't particularly like to go to the book of Acts to get teaching about opposition or persecution, right? Or even the command to go and preach the gospel. But the opposition is about as prevalent as the, the power, so much so that by the second century, a Christian who was killed for his faith was referred to as a witness. Of course, the Greek word for witness is the word from which we get martyr. That that became the technical term for somebody, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses by the second century. A person who was called a martyr, a witness, was somebody who had been executed for their faith. In fact, somebody who was persecuted but didn't face the death penalty, they were called a confessor. Because, in other words, it didn't rise to the same level as somebody who was really a martyr or a witness. The opposition to the gospel was as prevalent as the power. And so, overwhelmingly, the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, the power of the Holy Spirit is manifest outside the church, not inside. I'm going to make this essentially the same point about five different ways because I want us to hear it. My, one of the, I began with the question, what should we expect from the Holy Spirit? Should we expect the same thing from the Holy Spirit um, that we read about in the book of Acts? Again, the answer is yes or no. Yes, uh, yes and no. And the no comes from if we want to be a church that's inside all the time, we ought not to expect what the Holy Spirit does overwhelmingly outside. Overwhelmingly in the book of Acts, the power of the Holy Spirit is manifest outside the church, not inside. You, now, here's the good news. Most of you, almost all of you have a Bible. Probably all of you can read. And you can go read it and find out whether I'm telling the truth about this. But you go read all the miracles um, that it tells about in, in the book of Acts and even those you know, 42 mentions of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. You, the, those demonstrations of power in Acts are mostly outside the church, not inside. They're not gathered for a church service praying for the Holy Spirit to rain down. They are outside the church declaring the truth about who Jesus is, about the resurrected Lord, about he, that he will come again. And that's where the Holy Spirit meets him with power, outside, not inside. So we ought not to expect acts like power unless we're engaged in acts like outreach and evangelism. Don't expect the demonstration of power. Again, I'm saying the same thing five different ways, okay? Don't expect demonstrations of power or uh, don't expect the demonstration of the power of the kingdom where there is not proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. 
a staying church, quote, a staying church should not expect the Holy Spirit the same to, sh to show the same power as a going church. A church that stays ought not to expect the Holy Spirit to show the same power as a church that goes. And finally, I'd say we ought not to wait in here for power that is waiting us, awaiting us out there. Now, hopefully, at least the message comes through of the point I'm trying to make there. That if we really want to mine the book of Acts for uh, this very full-orbed teaching of the Holy Spirit, then part of what comes that comes with that is a obedience, an obedience to the Great Commission. A bold, courageous sort of Great Commission obedience that lays it all out there, and in their case, with the expectation that it was going to be costly. They risked a whole lot more than being made fun of, didn't they? For talking about Jesus. And so we, uh, our expectations then of uh, the extent of the Holy Spirit's power that we're going to experience uh, have to be uh, harmonized with, aligned with, how obedient we are to being a going church. And I, I'm really saying that not just about us. I just mean the church in general um, ought to align those expectations. If we, if we don't go, there's a whole lot of power we will not see because the power's out there, not in here. I'll come back around to that in just a minute. The second part of this, though, was, I said at the beginning, that when the gospel is penetrating darkness, we can expect, ought to expect, the Holy Spirit to work in powerful ways. And I think that's actually a really helpful way of looking at the book of Acts. When we see what transpires there, um, you, you see particularly, really everywhere they go, but the gospel is always going into new territory. It's being preached where it hasn't been preached before. There are all kinds of religious, political, institutional obstacles to the gospel that are disrupted by the preaching of the gospel. You have idols that are confronted by the preaching of the gospel. And there's hostility that pushes back against the gospel because of that. But again, that's, that's where we can expect for the gospel to be met with great power. And really, this has been true, I think, down through history. Um, that when, we when you see periods of great revival, or you see the gospel going into places where the gospel hasn't had any roots laid down at all, you start seeing the Holy Spirit work in dramatic ways. In fact, we heard a uh, testimony of that recently on one of our Wednesday nights. Um, but we've, we've heard before such stories. But um, in the Middle East where you have 
people who are in, in mass having dreams about some, some man telling them to go see this neighbor on their, in their community or whatever who's going to tell them about Jesus. And it, the, the story unfolds in, a, in, in different ways. But uh, God is where, where the gospel is going and has been preached for a long time with very, very little fruit. There are places where now um, they're having a hard time keeping up with the interest. Or they were preaching the gospel for years with very little interest in people hearing about it. Now they're having a hard time following up on all the interest. But, but what accompanies that at times is just um, God moving people in incredible ways that nobody could, no man could do it. And I won't uh, take the time to elaborate those stories. I'm just saying that even right now, we, we, we have people who would tell that on the mission field. And it's not because there, you know, there's lightning bolts coming from heaven or something. It is just the gospel being preached where it hasn't been. The gospel being preached when there's a cost to preaching it. They might get thrown in prison. They might get deported. They might get beaten. And there are stories of all that happening. But we see the, the Holy Spirit meeting that in great power. And I think you see that at different times of revival, um, even in more recent history. In fact, I would say the charismatic renewal of the 1970s was directly related to the broader revival that was happening in the 1970s. And many of you remember that. As a matter of fact, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, in some respects, was birthed out of that revival that was happening, just the, 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 the expansion of the gospel. And you had um, churches, that Presbyterian churches, that said, we really, that resonates with us. This evangelical fervor, there was a great revival going on, not only in America, but around the world. And you had... Um, this move of the Holy Spirit that came along with it. Uh, my point is to say, we ought not to think about the charismatic movement as something that sort of stood alone by itself. But that it was part of a revival, a renewal that was going on more broadly. And the gospel was at that time penetrating darkness. Even right here uh, in our own country, right? Do you remember the 1970s? Are you amazed that somehow people today want to relive them? That's a little bit of a footnote. But, you know, the generation that didn't live the 70s, somehow I think the 70s are real interesting. I can tell you, you ought not to have any interest in going back down that road. But the gospel was penetrating darkness at that time. You think about the social unrest surrounding the civil rights movement all that racial tension and so forth, the rise of the occult, witchcraft, paganism. Think about the number of serial killers that came, uh, sort of emerged in that era. The sexual revolution, of course, abortion on demand. That's the 70s. 
And as the gospel, as the gospel was being preached into that, even, even to people in churches that have been in mainline churches all their life and never heard the gospel before. Some of you are right here. Right, that's your story. You know I was in church all the time. Didn't know I had never heard the gospel for a long time. And as the gospel penetrated that darkness, there was real revival. And as there was real revival, it was met with the power of the Holy Spirit. And my point being, I think what we have even witnessed in our lifetime, you could look back and see in other revivals, not only in America, but other parts of the world, great moves of the Holy Spirit that accompany awakenings and revivals. Such that we ought not to get restless when uh, those demonstrations of the Holy Spirit's power sort of ebb and flow. When they are more punctuated at some times than other times. Because as he moves on the hearts of people and peoples, communities and nations, as he moves their hearts with the gospel, he very often moves in pronounced ways and power as well. Well, I should, I should end by saying, you know, the, the rest of the New Testament, beyond the book of Acts, and, and also before the book of Acts and the Gospels, but the rest of the New Testament does have lots to say about the work of the Holy Spirit, including his work inside the church. So one of the things I want to be sure you don't leave here with is the misunderstanding that I'm saying the Holy Spirit only works outside the church to get outside the church. That's not what I'm saying at all. Um, there is lot, lots that the, the New Testament tells us about the Holy Spirit's work within the body of Christ, right? Inside. I'm, I'm not saying at all that it's exclusive that the Holy Spirit only works in the context of missions and evangelism. But I am saying that the fullness of the work and the the, the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of that that we read about in the New Testament um, cannot be separated from the work of uh, missions and evangelism. And there are that lots of people without even, without even consciously knowing it have taken from Acts all the doctrine about the Holy Spirit, have built a lot of their theology of the Holy Spirit from the book of Acts but have divorced it from all that Acts says about missions and evangelism, about great commission obedience and even the opposition that comes along with that. And uh, we don't get to choose that as a buffet option. Yes, the Holy Spirit still works in powerful ways just like he did in the book of Acts. But we ought not to expect it um, if we're a staying church and not a going church. And that call remains and the invitation remains for us. And hence my prayer earlier that God would give us just a deep, insatiable desire. Suddenly, out of nowhere, but one that we have to seek satisfaction of, a deep desire to see our family, our neighbors, the un unbelieving community in the world around us come to know the Lord.
that he would really stir deep in our hearts what we know to be true in our heads about the world's need for Christ. Well, let's pray together. Lord, we praise you. As a great God and a good God who has shown yourself mighty and just as we declared early about, earlier about your greatness and lordship, you proved that to be true over and over again in the way you manifest your presence in the world and most especially when the gospel is boldly proclaimed to ears that haven't heard it, that penetrates darkness, that disturbs people's idols. And so God, we do pray once again that you would move us and mobilize us, Lord, that you would that you would move our hearts to catch up with our heads. That what we know intellectually about the world's need for Jesus would move us deeply in our hearts, God. Would you give us the eyes to see, to notice people, hearts to care, the courage, Lord, to respond with the expectation that you will meet us there in power because we want, we want you, Lord, to show your power in our church, through our church, and in the world that our church is a part of. To God, would you do so how and when and where you please to your glory. Amen.